The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. It's the Apostle Paul writing, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word this morning. It is true. It is able to accomplish its purposes this morning. Uh, I thank you again for what you're doing in this body of believers here at Story City. I pray that you would continue this morning to be faithful to your word and to move among us. Uh, Would you be heard and not me this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, amusia is a fancy word that basically means tone deafness. Uh, It's a word they made up. It's A plus musia, and it basically means that when you hear music, you don't hear pitch. You cannot hear tonality at all. And so, singing and anything that's musical is going to be pretty hard and difficult for you. Anybody in the room that would just fess up this morning, I think you're describing me. Anybody, nobody, somebody in here is like the person next to me should be raising their hand right now after worship. I know that they might have amusia. Uh, for those of you in the room that are audiovisual learners, uh, let's watch. I, I got a little clip that I think demonstrates it fairly well. So what do you sing? Selena, dreaming of you. Okay. Whenever you're ready. I no longer need this. Um... Late at night when all the world is sleeping, I stay up and think of you. And I wish on a star that somewhere you are thinking of me too. Cause I'm dreaming of you tonight till tomorrow. I'll be holding you tight and there's nowhere the world I'd rather be than here in my room dreaming about you and me. Just wanted you all to get a sneak peek of who's leading worship here next week. Um, so certain people hear music, but as we just saw, they just, it just simply doesn't compute in their head. They, they can't hear the tonality. They, they could hear a song over and over again, but never get the pitch down. They're just missing it, missing it, missing it. And I start there this morning because I really believe we're a church, Story City, that has one message. We preach the same message every week, week after week. We get at it from different angles, but the message that we lift up at Story City is that there is a Savior named Jesus Christ and that through his life, death, and resurrection, we as sinners can be forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, no merit of our own. And I think that so many of us, that's the, that's the central melody, that's the tonality of the Christian life, is grace. 
It's forgiveness through grace. And we come into church week after week after week, and we hear you're saved by grace through faith, no merit of your own. And we listen to, we hear verses like Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning this, that when you come to Christ through faith, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. You are in Jesus Christ. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Or we read verses like, we hear verses like uh, Philippians 2, verse 8, that you've been saved by grace through faith alone. And even that, that faith was a gift from God that he chose to give you so that you might be saved. And we hear message week after week after week, year after year on being saved by grace. And yet we stay tone deaf to it and we live functionally as though we go out of church like we must earn God's approval, like we must do, behave a certain way to get God to like us or love us. And it's a tragic misstep. And here's why. A tone deafness to grace, where you hear the melody over and over and over again, you hear preacher after preacher, verse after verse, book after book, on your saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his righteousness, not your own. Missing that leaves you only one other option, and that is to go out and try to earn something you could never earn to go out of church and try to earn God's acceptance, God's approval, God's favor with your own behavior. And that time after time after time without fail will always, always, always lead to a cycle of guilt and shame. And this subtle vague sense that we're just not good enough because as C.S. Lewis said, he was a pretty smart guy and he said, a man does not really know how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. We go out and try really hard to be good, and yet we know deep down, somewhere along the line, we're missing the standard, we're not measuring up. This, this, this knowledge that we miss the mark in our souls, that no one has to teach us, we just know it, produces this thing we call shame in our lives. Produces this thing where we know we just don't measure up. And why do we feel shame? Why do we feel shame tied to our failures? Because we know deep down, no one has to teach us this. It's something built in us, a moral code that comes from a creator that tells us sin is serious. Sin is a serious thing. It causes damage in our lives. It causes damage to the people around us. And more than that, and most importantly, it's an affront to a holy God whose standards are higher than ours. See, we know, we know that we don't, only, we don't only fail to measure up to our own standards. Like we have, if you wore a recorder around your neck, and just the things that you said about other people and how you think they should behave became the standard that you had to judge yourself by. No one in this room would measure up to the standard they hold other people to. We know deep down that sin is serious. And it begs this question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, I think we'll do an A, B answer here. Answer A, love for us, right? Yes, Christ went to the cross because he loves us and he wanted to save us. But the second thing the cross shows us other than Christ's love is the serious nature of our shortcomings and our sin before a holy God. It tells us that God is so deadly serious about sin as a holy God that it has to be dealt with. And so either it's dealt with on the cross where Christ dies in the place of sinners and we come to him through faith or we're left to deal with it on our own. And so we know deep down that this is a serious affront to God and we know that sin is a serious thing. And so what happens when we miss the message that it's grace alone, 
by faith alone, through Christ alone, when we miss that message, we begin to live in this vague, detached cycle of shame and guilt and fear and hiding. And Christ died to set us free from that cycle. Something that uh, three and a half years of ministry in Burbank has taught me, maybe more than anything, uh, is that we have a very real enemy, a spiritual enemy named Satan that hates us hates us, wants to destroy our lives, wants us to live in bondage. And I really believe and have seen in just conversations that have upset with people that are just struggling in their sin is that one of his favorite things to keep us bogged down and stuck in a cycle of sin is shame. He loves to get in our ears and tell us we are bad. See, the, the crazy thing about how the enemy works is he's our tempter, First and foremost, he tempts us. He sucks us into sin. He says, sin's not that bad. Get it, just, just go. You, you deserve this. Just indulge a little bit. And then as soon as he gets you to take the bait, he switches over to accuser. And he says, how dare you? You are such a failure. You're such a screw up. How could God love you? How can you love yourself? How could you ever accept yourself? Meanwhile, the God of grace sits in heaven and through his son, if you've had faith in him, at your worst, he loves you the same. Ephesians six twelve tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul's writing here and he says, we're not battling against each other. We're not battling against the world. Our battle is an invisible battle raging in the spiritual realms. And the fight to believe and experience the love and grace of God this morning, Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're wearing and carrying shame, you're involved in a spiritual battle and there's an enemy that wants to keep you bogged down in your shame when Christ already died to pay for it, when you're free, when you're loved, when you're accepted and embraced. And we need to wise up and see the enemy for who he is in this, that he wants to keep us. See, he can even, this is what's crazy. Satan can literally convince us that carrying guilt and shame after sin is godly. He'll literally convince you that it's some sort of penance you're paying to add to what Christ accomplished on the cross for you. Like to sin and then just not sit in guilt and shame is actually like to make light of your sin, but that's not the way it works. It's not godly to feel guilt and shame. What does it do? It makes light of the cross where Jesus gave his life as a perfect sacrifice quick side note, it's really important in this conversation on shame and grace to, for us to understand the difference between what I'll call condemnation and conviction. These are two very different words. We're talking about the enemy and how he tempts us and wants to keep us in shame. Now here's how the enemy works. He will condemn you in generalities, meaning he will tell you, you are bad. He won't, you, there won't be a specific thing it's attached to. It's just this vague sense that you're unworthy, that you're not loved, that you're not accepted before God. And he will harp on that chord. But the Lord, when he sees something in your life that's out of line with his goodwill for you and he sanctifies you out of it, he, con he doesn't condemn you, but he does convict you in specifics. He will specifically point to something in your life and say that. That's the thing I want. That's the thing that's keeping you in chains. I love you and I died to set you free from that. So what I don't want us to do this morning is to reverse the two. If the Lord through his Holy Spirit is speaking conviction into your life over something that is out of line with his will, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. 
You need to align yourself to what he's saying. But if there's a vague sense where every time you picture God, every time you get on your knees in prayer and you see God's face looking at you, it's this God that's scowling or disappointed or distant or unpleased, I wanna tell you that is condemnation coming from the enemy. And you need to recognize that voice for what it is. The Bible tells us we take every thought captive and put it in obedience to Christ Jesus. And so we name those things. We say that is the voice of condemnation and it's not from my savior but it's really important this morning that we understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. Now, I wanna quickly highlight two ways that I think grace tone, grace tone deafness plays out in our lives. I wanna highlight two ways that I think grace tone deafness plays out in our daily lives. See, some of you in this room have walked with Christ for a long time, some two, some 20 years, and yet you still live and we still live as if our acceptance before God hinges on how we're behaving and not on the finished work of Jesus. So how does this play out? Well, on your good days, when you wake up and you behave yourself and you get up before your alarm goes off and you, you treat your kids well or you, you love your spouse well or you behave yourself at work and you've had a four-hour quiet time, you read through most of Deuteronomy before the sun came up, like you are just nailing it. On those days, you feel very good about yourself, right? You're like, God, we can pray today. I got Deuteronomy in my back pocket. All right, I know the whole law. But then eventually that day, that dark day inevitably comes and knocks down your door. When that sin that you have told God a thousand times, never again, and you take the bait again and you fall or you blow up on your kids or you, you just lie to a friend, all of a sudden, there's a distance between you and God and you can't, you, rather than running to Christ for healing and forgiveness and confessing your sin, you run from Christ in hiding and shame the same way Adam and Eve did in the garden until you can accumulate and start accumulating enough good days in a row again, right? Like I've sinned, so I've got to get at least like eight or nine good days in a row before I can really go back to God and pray again and, and engage his word without this deep sense of shame and guilt. Like I'm not even really, like who am I kidding reading the Bible right now? I'm, I don't love God. Like these lies that the enemy would put into our heart and mind. Behavior like this is a huge indicator of grace tone deafness. It is telling you, it is screaming at you and me that we are not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but in our own behavior to earn God's acceptance. Secondly, some of us stay on the fringes of Christianity altogether. The fact that you're at church this morning is an anomaly, not a norm. And part of the reason why is because you just carry this deep sense of shame that in a room full of sinners, you are the one person who is so rotten to the core that God could never love or accept you for who you are, never. You just are convinced that you are exceptionally bad. Well, I wanna tell you this. Based on the Jesus I see in scripture, you're the person Christ would walk into the room and sit down next to because you know deep down how much you need his grace. And Jesus loves to give grace to the people who know that they need it. He loves to come to people that say, I know I need healing. He comes and he says, good, guess what? I'm about to show off in your life because healing is what I do. Healing is who I am. I bring healing to the broken. There is so much grace in Jesus for you this morning that it would just make your toes curl if you got a non-diluted taste. Like we cannot overestimate the grace of Jesus in this place this morning. 
We can't overestimate it. We can only underestimate it. What kind of God climbs up on a cross to die for the people that put him there? A God of grace, a God of love, a God who is waiting to wrap his arms around sinners, not a God who's waiting to punish them for screwing up. Now listen, God takes sin very seriously. That's why he went. But the cross proves that his disposition, his heart is forgiveness. It's what he wants to do. That's what he longs to pour out on you when you come to him by faith. For those of you in that second great tone deaf area, I want to tell you this. You can never out sin. You can never outrun. You can never out resent the grace of God in your life. I'm not here to tell you this morning you're not a great sinner. I'm not here to say I'm not one. We are. That's the cross proves it. The cross proves how much we need grace. But as John Newton said, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Or if you prefer an Anglican theologian, Richard Seib said, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Now I wanna say this, and I know we're taking a while to get to our text this morning. You'll just have to give me grace. Um, (laughs) This kind of talk always raises eyebrows. It just raises eyebrows. And I think it offends people in two different directions. One, somebody could be offended by this kind of talk because to talk about our need for grace is it's by its very nature to tell us that we are a room full of sinners, that we have to be forgiven. And there are people in this room that would much rather be told you're really not that bad, that you really don't need forgiveness all that bad, that you're really quite a good person. Now, I wanna say, if you're offended by that message, you're not offended by me this morning, you're offended by the word of God. God's word would lay before us this morning that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and in our need of forgiveness. God's word would lay before us this morning that the wages of sin is death. It has some hard things to say, but it never gives the the curse without giving the cure. It never lays before us our brokenness without quickly pointing us to the solution. So if you're offended by grace talk this morning, just know first and foremost, you need it. And God is trying to point you to your problem so that he can show you the cure in his son, Jesus Christ, who dies for sinners. The second group that would be offended by this, they'll say, careful, pastor, slow down. If you talk too much about radical free grace like this, you're just gonna give people license to sin. We're gonna get out of control in this place. Now, I wanna say this. My experience, first and foremost, as a human being, but secondly, as a pastor for about eight years now, has taught me people don't need any help sinning. Okay, we are incredibly good at it. It comes very naturally to us. I'm not overly concerned about my sermon giving license. I think we take it. What does the grace of God do? What does this kind of talk do? It gives us the freedom to admit who we are and put our sin in the light. See, where you have no talk of grace, no talk of the radical, undeserved forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, what do we do? We tuck our shirts in and we act like we got it all together because there's no safe place to admit, I got problems. My life's a mess. I'm screwing up left and right. Grace sets you free and says, yeah, you're a mess. Look at the cross. Jesus had to die for you. The the ground is level at the foot of the cross here. Everybody's a mess. So I believe that if we can really understand the grace of God, all of a sudden it will free us up to just say, this is what I'm struggling with. I need help. 
Like enter into my life and help me walk towards Jesus because I'm telling you, I'm struggling. Grace sets us free to be honest about who we are. One sign that you're really starting to understand grace and live the Christian life out of grace and not fear and law is a big one, is that you no longer want to stop sinning only to avoid the consequences of your sin, but because your sin itself has become gross and odious to you because you see, how could I sin like this when God, has, when God died to set me free from that? How could I trample on the blood of Christ so recklessly when this God of love and mercy and grace climbed on a cross to die in my place and your heart breaks? Do you hate the consequences of your sin or do you hate the sin itself? Because it's a huge sign as to whether or not you're actually just serving yourself or serving God. Whether or not your affections are just for an easy life of comfort and sin hurts. Or you actually love someone that's calling you up to something better. All you have to do to see the centrality of radical grace is open your Bible. Which we're going to do. All the people we call heroes, heroes in scripture, were total screw-ups. Noah was saved from the flood with his family because he feared God and was a righteous man. But after the boat, he got drunk and naked and had a rather awkward encounter with one of his sons. Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of many, but he prostituted his wife and said she was his sister to protect himself. Moses was called the meekest man that ever lived, spread his arms and part the sea through the power of God, but he was a murderer and had an anger streak that would make Thanos look tame. David was called a man after God's own heart. He slept with another man's wife and had him killed to cover it up. Solomon, we just spent six months talking about him, was the wisest man to live, but the amount of hedonism he embraced in his life would make the most callous sinner in this room blush. Jonah was a prophet of God, but he pouted and ran from God in anger because he didn't want to see people saved. Gideon was a great warrior, by, called a great warrior by God, but he hid in a wine press to avoid battle. Lot, Jacob, Samson, Jephthah, Uzziah, they all fell short. Are you getting the point? The Bible has one hero, one. And his name is Jesus Christ. He was perfect in Revelation 19. He is called faithful and true. He breaks heaven riding on a white horse. There is a sword coming out of his mouth that is the word of God. He is glorious, perfect, and comes in grace to give sinners a chance to repent. Draw near to him this morning. Draw near to him in reverence. Align your life with his in obedience. He loves you. The Bible has one hero. It is not me. It is not Matt Lawson. It is not King David. It is Jesus Christ. But perhaps one of the greatest figures in scripture through whom God showcased his redemptive transform the redemptive and transformative power of his grace was the Apostle Paul, who we're gonna spend the last 10 minutes here talking through in this text. We meet Paul, then called Saul, now, we know, we know Paul. We, most if you've got any time in church in your back pocket, you know Paul. He's, he wrote verses like, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, who says that? Like, that, I want to be able to say that, truly. But the, the brother was committed to Jesus Christ. He was all in. He was one holy dude. He would put anyone in this room to shame. That's the apostle Paul we know. But when we meet Paul in Acts 7.58, he's a very different person. He actually has a different name. His name was Saul. 
And we're told in Acts 7.58, there's a scene where the early church is taking root. Christ has died, resurrected, ascended in glory, and the early church is taking root. And Paul is a persecutor of the church. We meet him in Acts 7.58. And there's a guy named Stephen who has just given a baller sermon to a bunch of people that didn't want to hear it. And their response is to pick up stones and begin to throw them at him in what's called stoning, and we're not talking about weed. And we read this as people are getting ready to cast Stephen for testifying to the glory and grace of Jesus Christ as God alone. Acts 7.58 says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. So what's going on here? Paul's like the godfather overseeing the stoning ceremony. He's standing stoically approving. And the people who have to get a full range of motion for hucking the rocks are taking off their coats. And Paul stands and watches as this guy is stoned to death. This is the apostle Paul. This is his story. We go on from there. We're told that Paul continued to ravage the early church in Jerusalem. We're told that he would enter homes of believers in Jesus, dragging men and women alike off to prison. In Acts 9.1, we're told that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples in Jerusalem. And then from there, he decides, I've taken care of Jerusalem. They're, they're scared enough of me. I've done enough damage. I've put enough people in prison. And he says, give me the letters to Damascus to the high priest. And he wants to head off to another church to do the same there. And as he's on his way, as he's on his way to go persecute the early church in Damascus, he has an encounter with the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he appears to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And in a moment, if you continue reading, you see Paul has a transformation in his life that the early church even, as he comes and he, he meets with, with a guy and, and, and his life is transformed and changed. And how powerful is Jesus? Because Jesus says, go, go here and go here. And Paul just goes and does it right then and there without asking any questions. In an instant, he's transformed opponent to missionary. He plants the early church. He writes the better part of the New Testament. Now I wanna ask you this question. This is Paul. This is the guy that Jesus chose, handpicked, out of a large crowd of people that were already following him to plant his early church. Why would Jesus decide to choose Paul? Were there not better candidates he could have chosen to, to fill with his Holy Spirit and establish his church? Now, God, if we're putting this to a vote, I can imagine the early church would say, could we just think about choosing somebody that doesn't want to murder us all? Like, that's just, let's just start there. Like, it seems like the best option to go with somebody that doesn't murderously hate us. Well, again, in the text we read, Paul tells us why. And it gets, this is a picture, this is a portrait of God's grace. Verse 12, I thank, 1 Timothy 1, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Pause. So Paul says, God judged him faithful. Question, was he? Was he faithful? No. He was out murderously attacking the church of God. But he says, God judged him faithful, though he was a, formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. This is a clue into how our salvation works. When you come to Christ by faith, broken by your sin, and you cry out for grace, the scripture would say that at that moment, God justifies you. He justifies you. 
Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this justification word is a little theological, so let me explain. Uh, There is a literal moment when you come to Jesus and you say, God, I recognize that I am a sinner, but I recognize more than that, you are a savior that died in my place to take on the just punishment for my sin so that I can go free. In that moment, there is a moment literally in heaven where God bangs the gavel and he says, justified, righteous, good, holy, covered in my son's blood, forgiven, done, and he declares it and it is so for the rest of time in the sight of God. Forgiveness is to be told you can go free, right? I forgive you. You It's a get out of jail free card. Justification is more than that. Justification is to be told you can come. It's to be told you're righteous, you're beloved, you're mine, you're my child. This is something that happens in heaven in a moment. And Paul is pointing us to it. Let's keep reading. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. See the abundance there of God's mercy, of his grace. It overflowed. It's not lacking. It's not in short supply. It overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then this verse. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So question, why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Was it to judge sinners? Is that what it says? Was it to show us how to live better lives and try to be very good people that are well-behaved? No. Christ Jesus came to the world for one reason, and it was a rescue mission. It was to save sinners through his own work. Is that a, is that a, is that a statement we can trust? Is it worthy of full acceptance? According to the Apostle Paul, it is. Then he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is... Uh, as Paul's writing these words, he's a very different person at this point in his life than he was when he was out ravaging the church and committing people to prison for believing in Jesus. We talked about it. He's, I mean, he's writing scripture. He's planting churches. He's saying things as bold as, follow me and imitate me as I imitate Christ. At this point, he's got his life pretty tucked in and he's quite devoted to Christ. And yet he still chooses to say, I'm the foremost of sinners. His the transformation that has happened in his life, he's not taking credit for it. He's saying, this is who I am. This is who Paul is. Paul is a sinner saved by grace and not just any sinner, but the foremost. I'm out in front. Now I wanna say this. This is the posture of anybody who truly understands that they've been saved by grace. Saved sinners aren't always judgmental out, nitpicking out, looking at other people's sin and saying, how dare you? They better get that. They aren't out gossiping, trying to tear other people down for their sin. They're saying, I'm the biggest sinner in the room right here. Got my hand up. Saved by grace alone. Whatever you've done, I've done more. Forgiven by grace. People saved by grace aren't judgmental towards people who haven't yet been saved by grace. They aren't out pointing fingers at the world saying, those sinners better get their act together. How could they believe that? How could they think that? Our world is falling apart. It is. 
It's broken by the curse of sin, Genesis 3. They accept that as a reality, and yet they enter in with hope into a mission because they know the cure for the cancer is the grace of Jesus. And so with grace and patience, they engage the lost day after day faithfully with not an ounce of judgment in their heart, but with grace and mercy and hope that they will turn. They are the, we are the foremost Forgiven sinners are gentle and patient with people as they wrestle with their sin. They don't shy away from speaking truth. They don't call sin good. They don't not call sin out when they see it, but they do it with a posture that is gentle and warm and hopeful and inviting change. I hope that Story City is a church that models these things. I hope we are a church full of people that says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the foremost but look at the grace of God that's able to cover me. Lastly, in in letting us know why Paul was chosen by God, he continues, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason. So why why did Paul receive mercy? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What kind of patience does Jesus have? It's perfect. It's perfect. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And why, this is is what blows my mind. Why did God choose Paul for us? Why did God choose a, a broken, idolatrous, murderous sinner like Paul to start his church? so that us on the other side looking back could see the perfect patience of God that was able to save Paul and go, that could probably save me too. That can probably cover me too. It's probably enough to to save my heart and my soul and transform me. Do you believe that God has that kind of patience towards you this morning? Because I promise you this, when you see that kind of grace and that kind of patience in your life, it will begin to transform your heart. And a transformed heart will begin to transform your actions. I want to just end with two simple ways that I think Paul models for us here. That we can break the hold of sin and shame in our lives and enter into freedom and joy with Christ. Number one, let grace free you to be honest about your sin. Let grace just free you up this morning to stop the pretense, to stop the posturing, to find somebody you trust and invite them in and say, I want to follow Jesus and I'm struggling right here and I need help. Just do it. Watch the freedom. Paul is not trying to hide his sin so that we can think he's holy. He's saying it's about God posturing himself. It's about God's glory. And the grace that's been poured out into my life is so that God will look really good because when I lift my eyes to God, then my life begins to change. But when I stay navel-gazing on myself and how bad I am, nothing changes. It's just a perpetuating cycle. So get honest about your grace, about your sin. Secondly, what Paul models here. Let, the, let, the, let grace amaze you and lead you to love God more. Let grace amaze you and lead you to love God more. Paul ends this section. He says, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, immortal invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
Paul ends with exaltation. He says, God is incredible. To him be the glory. When sinners receive grace, they begin to praise. It's just what happens. It's the natural progression of grace. Do you believe this morning that you are forgiven? Do you believe it? Do you really believe that you're forgiven by grace alone? Rejoice, rest, and turn to Jesus. Look away from what's behind and look to what's ahead. Only grace can truly transform a heart. Let me pray for us. Father, would you right now, through your Holy Spirit, be the minister in the room? Would you allow grace to compel us to follow Jesus? Would you free this church up from the need to posture and prove and hide? But would grace free us to put our sin in the light where it can be dealt with and healed by your miraculous power? Christ, you are the cornerstone of Story City Church and of the Christian faith. Be glorified and lifted high in this place. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You can stand.